Hello, and welcome to the Bureau 42 Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcast. I am your host, Alex Case, and I'm flying solo today as we take a look at Akira, the debut film from director, ca- director, writer, and creator Kasuhiro Otomo. There's going to be a lot of Japanese names in this episode, and I am probably going to mangle a significant number of them. So I do want to apologize in advance for any native Japanese speakers who are listening to the podcast. Now, when in the past when I've discussed anime films, they I've mentioned they tend to fall into about three categories. The first is wholly original works, such as, for example, some of the later films from director Hayao Miyazaki, uh, The Wind Rises, for example. While it is a biographical film, it is also a film that is basically meant to be wholly original, not based off an existing biographical work the designer of the Zero aircraft. There are works which are compilations of a particular series. A good example of this is the film Macross, Do You Remember Love? Though that is more a... It falls into a slightly different category, which we'll discuss about when we get to that episode of and that film. Another similar example would be the Gundam compilation films. There are side stories based off a particular existing series. The Cowboy Bebop film, which I discussed earlier with Blaine, would fit in this category. And actually, to try not to get into the Spanish Inquisition sketch, constantly inflating number, there is also direct adaptations of a manga or novel. Hayao Miyazaki's Nausicaa the Valley of the Wind, which I've discussed with David Stark, fits in this category. And the work we're covering today also falls in this category. Akira began its life as a manga by Kasuhiro Otomo. Otomo had done various short manga works prior to this, some of the notable ones being Domu, A Child's Dream, which is a basically one-volume manga involving a malevolent elderly gentleman with psychic powers terrorizes an apartment complex, and a bunch of one-chapter works, such as Magnetic Rose, which would later be adapted by Otomo, or other directors into various anthology films, which probably is our fifth category, anime works. And Ultimo hadn't done any long works, and he was approached by his editor at Kodansha asking if he'd be interested in doing a longer series. He thought that the series would sell well and do well, and he thought that Otomo had the skill and plotting ability to handle a longer series. Uh, Ultimo took him up on the offer, and this led to Akira, which is a manga that is six volumes long. However, they're fairly substantial volumes. Let's see if I can get a uh, approximate number of chapters. The work itself ran, original manga, ran from 1982 to 1990 in Kodansha's Young Magazine, which is a... Um, Seinen Magazine, to kind of give a description of how manga works in Japan in brief, is manga generally is structured by demographic in terms of age, of who they're trying to sell the work to. There is shonen, which basically covers middle school to high school, adolescence, and the subject matter tends to be kind of action scenes with some older shonen works getting more into more sophisticated plots or involved or some romance involvement and that sort of thing. Basically, we're dealing series with characters who are either not really interested in girls when they start, uh, or the, op- the opposite sex, or relationships in general when they start the series. And usually by the time they age out of the demographic, they are interested in relationships, and this is usually reflected in the work. The next demographic is on the uh, girl side, uh, Shoujo. This tends to be a much more romance-focused series and much more interpersonal relationship-focused. But not always. There are some action shoujo series. The manga X1999, as it published in the United States, or just X, is a good example of this uh, from the uh, manga collective Clamp. Part of the thing with shoujo series is that if they don't feature direct female protagonists in as, as the main protagonist roles, they're usually in... in predominant supporting roles. And finally get to uh, Sh- uh, Seinen and Yosei, which are for basically college age and 
college-age men and women up to when they're entering the workforce, respectively. There are a few demographics older than that, usually for men in a men and women who are in the workforce, but those are the main ones. And part of the thing with sign-in in particular, which makes them, which marks the difference, is it's a lot more upfront with the type of content that it has. It is you, you can get significantly more violent content or more sexual content. There may be blood or slapstick where somebody accidentally peeps on someone in a shonen or shoujo series. But the difference, I think, is it's a one. Usually, when something that happens, it's generally a one-off thing. Whereas for show for um, seinen and yosei, usually the violent or sexual or what have you elements become a much more part of intricate part of the plot. And usually also you'll get into more political elements and, for that matter, uh, deeper philosophical meanings of the work because we're dealing with an audience who can handle that, who has had more life experience or been exposed to broader philosophical concepts. And that kind of brings into what makes Akira, I think, unique as a work of manga and also in its place in how manga and anime were exposed in the United States and the West in general. The film itself was made, well, made partway while the manga was running. The, as I mentioned, the manga uh, started production, started publication in 1982 and ran in 1990. The film itself was released in 1998. Now, production-wise, anime films tend to have, animation, anime films in general, Due to how the, the work is done, particularly at this point in the history of animation, where all of the work is being done on hand animated cells, you usually get a much longer turnaround than, say, for a live action film. So, the film itself started, started production several years before. So, in any case, the manga was still running. My estimate, we don't have an exact start date for production available for this film was that we're about at the halfway point of the manga when the film started production. Now, this is the first film that Kasuhiro Otomo directed from beginning to end. He had done some work in animation prior to this. He had worked on the animated film, anime film Harmageddon, or again, Matyson, directed by Rintaro from back in 1983. And before that, he had also, actually, or a little after that, he had contributed to the anthology film project Robot Carnival, having worked on the bookending sequences of the film, introducing and concluding with the titular Robot Carnival, as well as a seg the segment Order to Stop Construction. However, this is the first film he directed entirely on his own. And this is a film where Otomo put a lot of work into making, basically taking the things that he didn't like about the animation project from the other films he worked on, such as cutting corners by limiting animation, other steps that would cause the director to lose some creative control, and making sure that when he started this project, he had creative control over the entire project and took steps to make sure the animation was more detailed and that they were more able to be consistent with the in-betweening than they would otherwise have with other projects, even though the methods they used were, well, things that would prolong the process further. One example is digitizing the or the animation cells or filming them and then putting them together for animatics as effectively dailies. This is this is the like the, the rough sketches and that sort of thing before we started painting on cells actually. And this prolonged the process because it's a very involved process to do, but it allowed them to get a very consistent, very fluid sense of animation for a lot of the uh, shots of the film, particularly action sequences, the action sequences involving motorcycles. And there are a lot of them, especially the film's opening. The film also included some rough computer graphic elements related to a pattern indicator used to show the psych the psychic aura being generated by the character of Tetsuo. However, it's also used for a few other things, 
not so much for direct animation that was shown on screen, but to help pre-visualize stuff, such as, okay, this object's going to fall this way, here's how we need to do the, the parallax effects on some backgrounds, and similar sorts of things. Also related to the use of some of the lens flares that we do, that are used in the film. The film has some very interesting use of lighting in terms of light streaking from motorcycle headlights, or light sources in the background, and that sort of thing. So let's talk about the film's plot itself. The film kind of follows three main groups of characters. The first is a Baku's, um, I'm going to mangle this term, Bakuzoku, or Bozo, Bozozoku, rather, I apologize for stumbling there, uh, gang, basically juvenile delinquent motorcycle gang, which is known as the Capsules, and this group is, gang is led by Shotaro, Canada, or as he's known throughout the film, just Canada. His closest friend is Tetsuo Shima, who two of them were in the, the, an orphanage together as children. The uh, second group is a gr is a military secret government project to experiment on psychic children, and this relates to the Akira project or sort of the remnants of the Akira project. In charge of this is uh, Colonel Shikishima, who's played by played by Taro Ishida in the Japanese cast. Um, Kaneda is voiced by uh, Misaru Iwata, by, by Misuo Iwata, and Tetsuo is voiced by Nozumo Sasaki. The scientist in charge of the uh, government project is Dr. Onishi, voiced by Miz uh, Mizuo Suzuki. And finally, our third major sort of faction, our plot thread, is related to a group of, for lack of a better term, terrorists, who are seeking to cause change in the Japanese government through violent overthrow. And the main character coming out of this is a uh, teenage girl named Kei, voiced by Mami Koyama. There are a couple other members of the group as well. There is Ryu who is basically the de facto head of the group, voiced by Tesho Genda, or, te or I believe Tetsusho Genda, I think it's actually probably pronounced. And there's a few other members. Um, they have a sponsor and a uh, covert assistant in, or sponsor in the government named Nezu, voiced by Hiroshi, Hiroshi Utake. So... Let's get to the uh, film, it's, to, the, to the plot itself, and what's going on with the characters and the motivations. The film opens with the destruction of Tokyo through a psychic incident in 1988, in like September 1988. This is actually somewhat notable in that the film's release date was Jul in July 1988, so it's effectively opening with a apocalyptic event about two months in the future. We then fast forward to after the ensuing World War III, which may have been set off by this incident, which is not explained until later in the film. And in a rebuilt Tokyo called Neo-Tokyo, built on the ruins of the old Tokyo. Over the course of the film, we learned that prior to this apocalyptic event, which, well, you know, 31 years before, well, this apocalyptic event, 1988, was caused by a being known as Akira, a subject of a series of psychic experiments being done by the Japanese government. There were, we see, four test subjects in total. There are presumably others beyond this, but there are four who we may focus on. Kyoko, Takashi, and Masaru, and then finally, Akira himself. Each of them have numbers. Kyoko, who is frequently depicted as bedridden and who has psychic visions, is uh, number 25. Takashi who is a bit more active and frequently seen wearing, like, athletic jackets and baseball caps and that sort of thing, is number 26. And Basaru is number 27, with Akira himself being number 28. This is kind of meant as a reference to one of Kasuhiro Otomo's favorite manga, uh, Tetsujin 28 Go. Same thing with the title of the main character, with the name of the main character being Shotaro Kaneda, name of the main character from Tetsujin 28. Western audiences may know Tetsujin 28 under the title of Gigantor, though the protagonist from that show would have been renamed 
to something more anglicized. Following the apocalypse and the reconstruction of Tokyo, again, about 30-something years later, we have these... We, we have our... We move into our biker gang characters. Now, they're really the first characters we're introduced to in the film, and they are our main protagonists, in particular Kaneda. We're introduced to them having a basically running freeway battle with the biker gang known as the Clowns. And this is probably one of the most iconic animation sequences in film outside of the movie's own conclusion. It is incredibly intricately detailed with very fluid action and a very different score by a musical group called... I'm going to try and find the name. The Genyo Yamashiro Gumi. Uh, with music, with the music itself composed by Shoji Yamashiro. Apparently, real name is that's a, that is itself a pseudonym. The composer's real name being Sutomo Ohashi, and I apologize for mispronouncing all these names. It is a basical music musical collective, sort of not quite prog rockish, but it it's, involves a dramatic number of different types of instrumentation, lots of percussion, lots of choral elements. Not a lot of the normal symphonic instrumentation that you expect from a sort of musical score. Some of that's there, but not a lot. The fight ends with um, Tetsuo chasing down one of the bikers, taking him out, and then running in, almost, I should say, running into Takashi. He is stopped because Takashi throws up a second shield that badly injures Tetsuo and destroys his bike. Important mentally kind of thing about the psychics, psychic kids. The Psychic Kids were brought into the program 33 years prior to the event of the film. They, assuming they were about 10, uh, 7, 8, 9, 10 in that range when they are, when they are introduced to the program, which fits with how they're depicted in a flashback scene toward the end of the film, they would probably be in their 40s to 30s at the time. No, 40s to 30s. They would probably be in their early 40s, possibly 50s by the time this film is taking place, the kids look like they are about still height-wise and a certain degree body structure-wise like there are 7, or seven, eight, nine, ten, except with the wrinkling and aging of their body features that you would expect of someone who was geriatric. So, this is, this chase is introduced, is inner or rather, having been concluded, the child, Takashi, is basically retrieved by the military. And additionally, Tetsuo is taken with them, partially because of his injuries, partially because, well, they suspect that something is up about him. Now, important to mention also why Takashi is out and about. Takashi was basically kidnapped slash rescued from the facility by a by the terrorist group. As part of the chase sequence, we're also intercutting with dramatic protests against the state of the of the government and the mil and one of the members of the terrorist group trying to escape with the kid while going through traffic and the protests and also dealing with the intervention of the motorcycle chase. All of which kind of basically collapse and cause a, a big cluster frell for pretty much everyone involved. The protests themselves, kind of interesting, they're modeled after the protests against the signing of the mutual defense agreement between the Japan and the United States back in the 70s, approximately. And those protests were generally heavily clamped down on and pretty much the same here. We from what we see of the protests, there are some violent elements in terms of empty cars getting turned over and torched, but it's the reaction that's get, that happens from the uh, military up against the protest or putting down the protests is probably comparable to the response against the World Trade Organization protests of in Seattle during the early nineties. In fact, this is kind of an appropriate comparison. Uh, when I was a kid, um, I first saw Akira on the Sci-Fi Channel back when they showed Japanese animation 
on Saturday mornings, and also back when it was called the Sci-Fi Channel, as opposed to Siffy, as it's called now. And I did not see the whole thing at one whack. I saw bits and pieces of it. And one of the bits I saw was of the protest sequence at the beginning of the film. So it was kind of an impressive moment where I was in um, Tacoma, which is adjacent to Seattle during the WTO protests, and I was able to see the massive clouds of tear gas smoke and see footage of the clouds of tear gas smoke on the news. And so it was a very kind of evocative moment where life was in a way imitating art, not in the streets of Tokyo, but rather in the streets of Seattle. And throughout the film, we have from you know, it set this undercurrent of social and societal unrest throughout Neo-Tokyo. We will frequently throughout the film be seeing protests happening throughout the film. These protests will eventually end up either backing Tetsuo or getting destroyed by Tetsuo or the military. And frequently related to this, Akira's name will be mentioned. Um, it's not clear how these protesters are learning of Akira, but they are aware of him. There are two kind of implications for how, it's, how they know about him. First is, the film makes it clear that Nezu has been leaking information about the Akira program to the public. Not the full details, or that Akira was in fact itself, himself responsible for starting World War III, but more that Akira was, that was a powerful entity. And so, as also part of this, we have a sort of Akira cult. Now, in the film, the Akira Cult uses imagery of characters from the manga, in particular a woman named Lady Miyako as sort of the high priestess or priest of the cult. In the movie, Lady Miyako is given a, is more masculine, is given a uh, male dub actor to voice the character. In particular, uh, Koichi Kitamura, the Japanese dub. We'll, We'll get into the English dub a little bit later, because that one's Things get more complex there. And and in the film, Miyako is in leading a basically Amshin Rikyo-esque cult, worshipping Akira. And saying that Akira will return and purge the city of corruption and cleansing fire, effectively. In the manga, the character of Miyako is a actually another member of the test program. Miyako, Lady Miyako is number 19. And her prophesying about Akira is less related to worship and more warning that this is coming and we need to prepare, not because, not in the sense of, oh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, sort of witnessing, apocalyptic witnessing, but more in terms of prepare yourselves, this is, bad thing is going to happen be ready so that when it happens, you're not caught off guard and you're, and you can survive and rebuild again afterwards. It's more the end of the world is nigh sort of thing. In the film also, it's made less clear in, we have a bit more information in the manga in terms of what the, what the terrorist groups are, what their motivations are about. Whereas in the film, there's no real motivation for what the terrorist groups are is they are, trying to overthrow the government, and it's made some understandable as to why. We see the Japanese government that we see is very corrupt, very hidebound, and unable to get anything done. I suspect this is, to a certain degree, meant to be somewhat satirical of the Japanese government at the time this film was made, from the post-war period to basically about the the late 90s, once we get out of the, uh, once the Japanese bubble burst. The Japanese political system literally had only one po- party in government. This isn't like the... Some people will ref- sarcastically say that the U.S. political system only has one party. Uh, no, this is actually only one party. And after certain political revelations in the 90s and related to covering up kidnapping of Japanese nationals by the North Koreans and the failure of the, of the uh, economy... There was a political shakeup. At this time, there's basically only one political party for various reasons related to corruption and barriers to entry for new political parties and that sort of thing. And there's clearly meant to be somewhat satirical of that. And this also kind of leads to sort of a setup of each of the three groups and how they are handled by the plot. Because 
of all the groups in the film, all the different sort of walks of life that are depicted, the military and the biker gangs probably come out the best, or let's say the youth and the military come out looking the best. The politicians are either too skeptical to understand what's going on and refusing to pay attention to any evidence set before them. The scientists, as represented by Dr. Onishi, are more focused on the, for lack of a better term, depiction, accumulation of knowledge without the con- concern about the consequence of what's learned or the methods used to attain this information. Onishi is more focused on what we can learn from Tetsuo without being concerned about the fact that he's currently leveling Tokyo. Good example of this. The terrorist groups, we don't see any ide- any information about their ideology. We know they want to overthrow the government because they're a terrorist group, that's what they do. But the, we don't know what they're going to put in their place, they don't make any political statements in terms of what their end goals are, they just want to change things. They are not, say, I say this, recording on the Sunday after the terrorist attacks in Paris. They are not depicted as a group like ISIS in terms of just indiscriminately attacking civilians. But we also don't really see what their targets are. We see a bombing in what may be a mall, but it, but it also appears to be a bombing at a military checkpoint, and it's not clear if there's any loss of life at all. And we see them attempt to kidnap people from the psychic testing, pro- testing program, or rescue people from the psychic testing program. It's, uh, with Takashi, it's apparently voluntary, and the other person they attempt to retrieve, Tetsuo, by the time they get there, it's really not clear whether it's a rescue or what. Their intent is rescue. Tetsuo probably would have wanted to leave. Well, Tetsuo was wanting to leave anyway, but at which point Tetsuo's powers have awoken. Now, the biker gang, who we kind of follow focus the most of the plot on, aside from little interludes with the political side of things and the colonel, is basically what I would describe as the stock juvenile delinquent high school. The way Japanese, the Japanese high school system is structured. Kind of important to mention this. It's not too important for the um, film, but it adds a little bit of depth, is you don't go to school based on your geographic area where you live. You, can you test into schools. This is why if you watch um, old, like, like 70s monster movies and stuff like the Gamera movies or even anime movies with middle school protagonists or TV shows with, with middle school protagonists, you have characters going to cram school. They're, they're going to cram school not because they want, because their parents are trying to get them ready for their SATs in middle school. It's because their parents are getting them ready for the placement tests for high school. And then they'll get to do this all over again later for placement tests for college in high school. So that's fun. And there are sort of mechanical high schools as well. And these have lower testing requirements in some cases in the sort of juvenile delinquent genre, subgenre of, ma- of manga, usually shown in manga. These high schools are the ones where basically you get the high school full of juvenile delinquents or where all the juvenile delinquents go to this school or what have you and the baddest of the bad and that sort of thing. And that's basically what this high school is. It's a sort of remedial mechanical high school for all the tough juvenile delinquent kids who don't actually care that much about studying and the school is also grossly underfunded and has been heavily vandalized and that sort of thing. And this also introduces us to one of the other major characters from the show. Not major, a significant supporting character. Now the character of Kaori, who is Tetsuo's love interest, or she's in love with Tetsuo, she, and it, it is reciprocated, but Kaori as a character is one who is unfortunately not very well written in this. She's a little better written in the manga, however, at this point in the manga, she hasn't appeared that much. And she exists in this film to be a neutral sounding board for Tetsuo basically to talk to. Someone who he has a neutral relationship with, as opposed to Kaneda, who is head of the gang and is thus technically his quote-unquote senpai using the Japanese senior subordinate structure. So Tetsuo is sort of supposed to be deferential to Kaneda, whereas the other biker gang members, it's where they're in a biker gang, they're all 
supposed to be all rough and masculine and braggadocio and that sort of thing. And so if you, there's no one you can really talk to you, talk to about your feelings. However, the character of Kauri does have the other problem of she's a character with no agency of her own. She exists to give Tetsuo someone to talk to, which narratively is important in terms of characterization of female characters. Kind of crappy, gotta say. Tetsuo ends up kind of popping in and out of this research, of this hospital and the research facility where the psychic testing is done, which also is kind of weird from a narrative standpoint. If Tetsuo can just get up and leave without any problems, though he's certainly hunted down after, chased down afterwards and retrieved by the military, then why are the steps that the uh, team has to do to, to get Tetsuo out so much, so heavily involved and so risky? Particularly since, again, Tet, I mean, yes, Tetsuo is certainly a psychic, and the psychic kids are very well protected in their little playroom, but they are not they are not tets- they're not as new to the program as Tetsuo is. So there's that. Uh Tetsuo tries stealing Kaneda's bike. There is a bit early on in the movie that's plot thread that's dropped later, with Tetsuo being pretty obsessed with Kaneda's bike, which to be fair, is kind of justified because Kaneda's bike is a really cool bike. It is if I was to describe it to someone who knew motorcycles but hadn't seen the picture of Kaneda's motorcycle, I would describe it as a cross between a hog, in terms of with the long forward axle, uh, forward wheel, and a high-performance bike, something like your, oh, the, the technical term, well, technical, but the, the colloquial term I've heard used to describe this sort of motorcycle is a crotch rocket. Probably the, like, the one that comes to mind is Ducati. If you took like one of the like high-end Ducati performance bikes and designed it so you have that sort of frame and over the chassis to make everything more streamlined and less exposed internal workings of the motorcycle, but put the structure of a hog on it uh, as your actual interior motorcycle structure, that's something like what uh, Tetsuo's motor. Sorry, Kaneda's motorcycle is. Tetsuo has a, his own personal motorcycle is much more mundane. So, film itself, um, had, this is the point where things start get, getting really psychedelic. Not slightly psychedelic, but really psychedelic. Okay, well, kind of slightly psychedelic. Tetsu, um, Tetsuo basically has sort of like, this, what I would describe as a bad trip. He steals Kaneda's motorcycle. It stalls while they're in front of the clown's base, and they are attacked. And Tetsuo and Kauri are attacked. Kauri is assaulted. It is not clear whether it is just a physical assault or a sexual assault. It's kind of left the imagination in an unpleasant way, but there's that. And uh, Tetsuo is knocked out for this. When Tetsuo comes to, Kaneda and company have shown up and have taken out the clowns. We actually see uh, Kaneda and company take out the clowns, and it's a fairly well-done action scene. But uh, Tetsuo doesn't see this, he's just getting rescued again, which makes him upset. And he beats the stuffing out of one of the members of the clown gang, and in emotional rage, he starts having these hallucinations. He has catastrophic headaches, he hallucinates that his intestines are falling out, and that the ground is tearing open beneath him. Now, at this point, we've had some some violence. We've had some bloody violence in the film. Most of it has just been bloody violence. Um, a dog is shot and blood splatters on a car. Uh, a person is shot with machine guns. And it, it's, it's bloody violence on par with, like, Robocop, where basically somebody's shot to a pulp, but there's no, like, gore and internal organs or anything like that. This is something beyond that, and this is also where where Akira gets in kind of what I call the other variety of body horror. Back in when we talked about The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, we talked about body horror in terms of the horrific nature of the body where that where body parts turning into, or body 
body's morphing into something that a human body should not look like, or a natural being should not look like, whether it's with the dog or with what happens to some of the people who have been transformed by the thing later in the film. In Akira, we kind of get into the other aspect of body horror, which is you losing control over your body. And we see this throughout the film with sort of various elements, whether it's hallucinations on the part of uh, Tetsuo, or later in the film after Tetsuo loses his arm, he psychically crafts a new arm for himself, but then loses control of it and over the rest of his body as well. One of the more iconic scenes in the film's conclusion. So, um, and this kind of all develops out of this point and keeps building from this point. It's here that we get that Kanad, that Tetsuo, there's something very wrong with them that's psychic related, but we're not quite clear how far it's going to go. We know he has psychic power, but we're not sure how much it is. Tetsuo is retrieved to the by the military, taken back to their test facility, and Kanada hooks up with the terrorists to try and get them back. And this is basically from here where all the plot threads come together, and then two of the three of them are dropped entirely in favor of the main plot thread of Tetsuo's developing psychic powers. The government tries to fire the colonel at around the time where Kanada or Tetsuo is breaking out of the facility and going on a massive catastrophic psychic rampage at which point the military overthrows the government. The arguably elected government, and it's not made clear if the colonel plans to return power to the people. He frequently, over the course of the film, basically states his disgust with the very idea of, of democracy, feels and feeling that the populace cannot be trusted to govern themselves. So, there's that. However, on the other hand, the colonel... While the colonel's political views are unpleasant and fascist, his reason for overthrowing the government and disobeying the government's orders is arguably reasonable in the sense that the... No, not arguably reasonable in the sense that he knows that there is a massive issue that's going to happen with the rampaging psychic teenager, and this needs to be nipped in the bud now. Otherwise, the whole city is going to be destroyed. And... So he, he, he can't be dealing with the politicians while dealing with this issue. And also, based on political, uh, on viewpoints stated in er the earlier sort of Diet meeting in the film, that it's not entirely clear that the government would believe that this, that Tetsuo was a threat before it was too late. So there's that side of things. Uh, that said, it appears to be that the, uh, that Shikishima, the colonel, is not like trying to arrest the members of the government and possibly returning power later after he's done. He's he's killing them. He's killing the existing government figures. I'll get into, I'll get into this a little bit later. It, it reminds me a bit of another anime work, which didn't necessarily make the list, but we'll get to that in a moment. We have, throughout all this, Kanada and the, and the terrorists attempt to retrieve Tetsuo and... The exception of Kay and Kanada, they're basically all wiped out. Ryu is badly wounded and then is finished off by Nezu when he goes to Nezu's uh, estate to report in. Through all of this inside the facility, kind of interlocking with all these plot threads, Tetsuo is antagonized by the kids who try to terrorize him using sort of psychic constructs. And I really don't get why the scene happens aside from for some surrealistic imagery, and because I guess that Otomo thinks old people are jerks, as this kind of comes up again in Domu with a psychically powered older person with her childlike mentality terrorizing people. This happens, leads to um, Tizu going, all right, love is enough, and heading down the hallway to take out the kids, and at which point he starts murdering, like, tens, if not hundreds of guards. And once he learns from the kids, the kids about Akira, he then sets out on probably the most iconic rampage in the history of cinema, where he basically goes through the streets of Tokyo. The military tries to stop him with pretty much everything they have, and gets blown away. They, they, they get blown away. It is, it is almost a like a weird inversion of Godzilla, not in the sense that the 
Godzilla figure is actually being harmed by the military, or that the Godzilla figure is not destructive in the sense that the, that Godzilla and other kaiju are, well, they're giant monsters. They're multi-story beings. And Tetsuo is a average height, average build teenager. Rough estimate, I'd say 15 years, 15, 16 years old. And the military is throwing a level of force at him pretty much on par with what would be used with against Godzilla, more or less. And this normal-sized person is shrugging off and wiping out pretty much everything in his path. I mentioned earlier the shout-outs to Tetrigen 28 with the uh, number for Akira and the name of Kaneda. Might as well mention another one here. Tetsuo's appearance in this sequence is kind of modeled after another manga that was ran a little before this called Shojin Lock, or Lock the Superman. In particular, uh, Lock is frequently depicted in the manga of having very spiky hair and often wearing a white shirt, in some cases with a cape. And in that manga, Locke is basically an immortal or semi-immortal psychic going through various different eras throughout time and playing different roles. He has, um, and here with uh, Tetsuo, he's got... His hair has become more spiky than before. Uh, he's basically wearing his certain degree scrubs, but not scrubs, but his um, hospital garb, um, the more pants and shirt hospital garb as opposed to the backless blouse. And had and in this initial portion of the rampage, takes a scrap of fabric from a store window and turns that into a improvised cape. Which causes him to strike a figure a lot like Chojin Locke, except, or the Locke the Superman. The difference being that Locke is a benevolent figure, whereas Tetsuo is a person who is a adolescent teenager who feels that, that he's been wronged by the world, and he now finally has the power to strike back and lash out against everything that he felt, that he feels has been put against him. Um, societal structures, um, government, the laboratory experiments, and to a certain degree also his peers due to how he feels he's looked down on by the gang. There is a scene a little before uh, Tetsuo starts his rampage where he returns to the bar where the capsule gang hangs out and basically trashes the place, kills the bartender, and takes the psychedelic drugs that the bartender sells and also kills one of the two other members of the biker gang. And I believe the character's name is Takiyama, is the one who is killed. And thus the rampage begins. So from here, what happens is, is Tetsuo trashes his right through the center of town. Um, and military is wiped out. The protesters who see him as the second coming of Akira are also wiped out. And finally, Tetsuo reaches this underground deep freeze chamber where the various components of the dissected deceased Akira have been kept in hypercold storage with what almost feels like the mindset that if we, that like the scientists were like, if we keep let these stay at room temperature, he might psychically recombine himself and kill us, which later is revealed to in fact be a valid concern. And after all, all this massive rampage, Tetsuo reaches the facility. Through all of this, Kaneda is also trying to make his way there. And Kei is recruited by the psychic kids to serve as sort of a... Not a vessel, but a proxy to help them fight back against Tetsuo. This is also kind of unfortunate, because in the manga, Kei actually has a very significant role. She is recruited instead by Lady Miyako, for a similar difference, but a similar role. But the difference is with Miyako and K in the manga. In the manga, K, it's, they're setting up that K is actually a latent psychic herself. And Miyako is taking the different stance of how to handle psychic powers. And rather than awakening them through pharmaceuticals and experimentation, creating a situation where the newly empowered psychic, Tetsuo in this case, loses control of their powers, or is otherwise unable to control them and goes into destructive rampage, this is meant to be more training in how to control the powers as you unlock them, 
through um, also some di- through instilling the discipline, not just to control them, but also to kind of understand, for lack of a better term, that great po- better expression, that great power inv- involves great responsibility. To put it another way, it would be like going like the Lady Miyako way is basically going through Jedi training, whereas the way that Tetsuo's powers are awakened is basically like getting a force power boosting well, booster shot and not really giving anyone any philosophical grounding for or training in how to control your force powers or how or how to use them, not just in terms of just the practicalities of using them, but also in terms of the philosophical and ethical underpinnings of dealing with these powers. So that's the main bit there with this plot arc. And with this plot arc with Kay in the manga. Here, again, she's basically deprived of most of her agency, in this case somewhat by choice, by volunteering to let the psychics, or in particular a Kyoko, kind of drive her like a car to fight against Tetsuo, which doesn't work out very well. So, for as part of this, um, Kaneda basically being of the mindset that in fact, he says specifically, Tetsuo is my friend. If anyone's going to kill him, it's going to be me. Uh, takes one of like the, the battery-powered laser rifles from the military checkpoint, which has been wiped out by Tetsuo off-screen earlier, and decides to ride out and do battle with him. And as part of this fight, well, one, it doesn't work out for really Tetsuo or, or for Tetsuo, Kaneda, or Kei. Kay is not really able to hurt him. Kaneda gets a couple good shots in with the laser, but isn't actually able to hurt him before Kaneda runs out of juice. And then the colonel manages to use a orbital death ray laser called Soul to hit Tetsuo, but it only manages to blow his arm off. And before the colonel can get a second shot off, Tetsuo has destroyed the Soul death ray satellite, and has also psychically constructed himself a new arm. So, so far, it's about a draw. Tetsuo withdraws to the currently under construction Olympic Stadium for the uh, 2019 Olympics. Ironically, as of this recording, Japan, uh, Japan has gotten the... has won the bid to have the 2019 Olympics in Tokyo. So... That's one prediction that's kind of happened, except not, because one, we haven't had the end of the world due to Akira yet, thank god, and two, in the film, we don't actually have the 2019 Olympics in Neo-Tokyo, because Neo-Tokyo gets destroyed again by Tetsuo, and also arguably Akira, so there's that. And at this point, for the film, briefly, Kerry reappears to once again serve as a sounding board, while the... Other characters sort of prepare for a sort of counterattack. Uh, Colonel Shikishima basically grabs a gun, decides to take matters into his own hands. The psychic kids decide also to try and do team up three on one to take out Tetsuo in a psychic battle. And then Kanada recharges the laser using Yamagata's bike because Yamagata is basically going, because Yamagata, who's probably the, the comic relief character, the closest this movie has to comic relief character, aside from Kanada himself, has, is tagging along, and kind of the joke here is that this process is potentially can cause the bike to overheat and catch fire, and Kanada would rather not have his bike catch on fire, and because, as I mentioned before with the whole Senpai Kohai thing, Yamagata is Kanada's Kohai, or subordinate, Yamagata's bike gets charging duty. So the evening of the battle comes, and what ultimately ends up happening is that, well, things manage to find a way to get worse. Kanada gets a few shots in on Tetsuo with a laser. Koshikashima tries to shoot him, but unfortunately for all parties involved, Tetsuo loses complete control of his body. And in the process, Kaori is killed. He is Kaori, Kanada are sort of 
engulfed by the expanding mass that is Tetsuo. Shikishima manages to get clear, and the second kids kind of get clear. Almost. And the... And in the process, Kaori is crushed to death. And it is not as gory as some of the other bloody deaths we've had earlier in the film, but it's... It is a very bloody scene. It is very disturbing. Deliberately meant to be so, but it is also... It also kind of encapsulates everything that this film does wrong with the character of Kaori, in that she is a character who exists to be a sounding board for another male character, a male character, and when she no longer serves any purpose in the plot, she is killed horrifically to emphasize the tragedy of the situation, which is, I think, unfortunately done. Kaneda manages kind of partially to break his wig out using the laser rifle, and... Then Akira returns, sort of, and helps Tetsuo transubstantiate or ascend to a higher plane of existence. And in the process, most of Tokyo is leveled again, leaving Tokyo in about as bad a state as it was after the initial Akira incident, with the psychic kids choosing to basically kind of transubstantiate or give up themselves to help. Kaneda and Colonel Shikishima survive with Yamagata and Kei being far enough away and in a position where they can take cover and avoid the impending destruction. And the film ends with Shikishima walking out of the tunnel where he'd been uh, teleported to by the psychic kids. And Kaneda and... Kay and Yamagata riding off into basically the sunset of the ruined Tokyo with Tetsuo having basically ascended to a higher plane of existence. And this is where I get into the messages, morals, and meanings. It's the bit which Lane borrowed from the Mission Log, Mission Log at Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, and I am borrowing from both of them. And for Akira, hmm. The messages, morals, and meanings of the manga and the anime, I feel, are very different. The manga runs further. In fact, the anime is actually, at this point, it ends at the halfway point of the manga. In the manga, what happens is the destruction is not caused by Tetsuo's ascendance, but Akira's return and sort of the formation of a great Tokyo empire. So... There, there's, there's kind of more to it than that there. I don't want to spoil too much of the uh, part of the manga. But in any case, in the manga, there is sort of the the narrative focus of the work is a on the balance of of um, sort of spirituality and technology. We have um, where Lady Miyako sort of serving as the voice of the spiritual side of things and arguably the colonel being, or, or, or either the colonel or Kana, depending on looking at it, being part of the, being representative, not so much of the technological side of life, but the the, the, the physical realm, the, and finding a balance between the physical and spiritual realm, where Akira, by going too far into the spirit, by letting himself be consumed by the spiritual side of things, and potentially also Tetsuo, lost, truly lost himself, whereas K because she has both the grounding elements of Kaneda and the spiritual grounding of Miyako, is able to be, in some ways, a more powerful psychic, but more grounded psychic, than Tetsuo really is. So, anyway, with the... Oh, actually, minor correction. Uh, no, never mind, I had it right. The, the, the guy who... The, the biker who is still alive and helps out uh, Kaneda is Kai. Yamagata is the one who's killed earlier. There is some group conversion between Kai and K, so minor correction. Sorry about that. Anyway, in the film, it's a bit weirder because the film only really has two reasonable figures in it, so to speak. In the manga, we have the sort of authority figure dichotomy of Miyaka as spiritual voice, the colonel as societal voice. To a certain degree, also, um, Ryu as political, as political and societal voice. Because he lasts much longer in the film as opposed to in the movie where he dies fairly early. And Ryu is like, survives the entire film. Um, survives the entire manga. 
Almost. He dies towards the end. So you have that dichotomy in the manga. In the film, it's the colonel is reasonable authority figure. Somewhat reasonable authority figure. He's overthrowing a, a, the theoretically elected government and is not certain and is debatable whether he's going to actually reinstate them, as I mentioned earlier, or, or allow a, a new elected government once the crisis has passed. Whereas on the other side, we have, as far as for the other figures that are reasonable and who we follow and sympathize with, we have Kaneda. This is probably the one, just the one bit which does carry over between both manga and anime, which is, to a certain degree, the superiority of youth, superior of youth, but the youth as successors of the old, and that that the older generation, and that if the older generation is basically allowed to, to run unchecked, that things will keep going bad or get worse. And younger generation and the younger generation are the ones which will get the opportunity to change things and make things better. This is probably better represented by the conclusion of the manga, without getting too far into spoilers, where the biker gangs basically kind of end up uniting and sort of forming a new government in Tokyo following the conclusion of the film's events. Other than that, I mean, to kind of put this in contrast, I guess, is there's another work that came out around the same time. In terms of anime, in terms of anime, and that is Megazone Twenty Three Part One. In Megazone Twenty Three, there are a lot of points in common. Um, it has a cool motorcycle, a major plot point. Just sticking with the comedic bits first. Um, the main character is part of a biker gang, but the difference in, and has a military figure as an antagonist who also throws overthrow, overthrows the government, the elected government, as part of a coup. But the clear difference here is that the military figures in the in Megazone 23 are totally antagonistic. They are not heroic in even the slightest way. And they, they are doing what they're doing not because there is an imminent crisis and they're the only ones equipped to handle it in terms of really anyone. Here in Akira, yeah, in Akira, the military is sort of technically best equipped to handle this in the sense of they have the psychics, though I don't think the colonel thinks of thinks of responding to the problem that way. In Megazone 23, the military is bad, just bad, and they're pretty much universally in the wrong. Both works have a distinct tone of distrust of authority, and that the younger generations have a better sense of what to do and are in the position to fix the errors of the past, but... With the with Akira, there was a certain degree of sense of they can fix it with the fix the errors of the past, but with the help and guidance of the older generations. It's much more of a kind of sense of compromise, but still, there is the idea that the younger generations will lead the way. It is also kind of interesting in contrast compared to the conclusion of another anime, which is not exceptional in the slightest, *Brave of the Fireflies* by Isao Takahata, which also came out the exact same year in Japan and in Grave of the Fireflies. The conclusion of the film has the ghosts of the two dead children. This isn't much of a spoiler because the kids die at the beginning. And yeah. And the ghosts of the two dead, two dead children looking on at modern society with a look that kind of is a one of, of disappointment and possible contempt. That the dead kids representing the older generation feel that the younger generation does not respect the sacrifices or or the judgment of the older generation, though arguably the older generation was the ones who kind of put Japan in the bubble economy and who set up the single-party government and all these other elements, and we're, we're getting into big political discussions about Japan in the 1980s, or the late 80s, early 90s. So, it, it makes for a really weird, interesting political con um, contrast in terms of the messages, morals, and meanings, and kind of trying to interpret what the film is trying to, what this work is trying to say about Japanese society, particularly considering, again, the big differential between the two works, between the two versions of the same work, due to where, again, the manga is at the time the film is made. So, I mentioned a bit about the dub here, because I didn't talk about much about the English dub when I was giving names of actors. This film has been dubbed twice. This was originally released in 1989 by Streamlines, where it got the original theatrical release. Streamline is a company founded by Carl Masek, 
who is responsible for bringing Robotech to the United States. That's Macross, uh, Superdimensional For- Fortress Macross, Superdimensional Cavalry Southern Cross, and Genesis Climber Mospita, all kind of lumped together into one show. Masek later left Harmony Gold and started Streamline to bring over films, movies, and direct-to-video OVAs and that sort of thing. This film kind of has a... makes a few adjustments to the names of characters and takes a few liberties with the cast and that sort of thing. And the dub is kind of clunky. It is a 1989 dub, and so there are some issues with that. It's, if you've heard these sort of sound clips about making fun of the Tetsuo Kanada screen, screaming thing, um, this is kind of part of that. I believe there are a few more moments that had dialogue to them in the Japanese dub that were just changed to, Tetsu, to screaming Tetsuo and or Kanada in the Streamline dub. The film was then redubbed again in 2001 by uh, Pioneer Genion for their DVD release, which also included a remaster of the audio track and the film itself. And there's a few more big names. Johnny Young Bosch, who had been, been has been in the Power Rangers programs in the past, and also was a frequent voice actor for Funimation and other companies, was the new voice of uh, Canada. In the Streamline dub, he was voiced by Cam Clark. And Wendy Lee, who has been in pretty much everything. I'm not entirely exaggerating. If you look at her uh, dub cast on her dub cast listing on like Anime News Network or on the IMDb, it is huge. And that's not getting to stuff where she's directed the dub either. So it's that. And the release that has both is probably the one that's most available, where the DVD release, lots of copies that were printed, sold very well, and when Funimation licensed rescued Akira after Genion closed its stores, Genion USA closed its stores, they basically repackaged the existing release, did like one more remaster pass to get you have the master that was on the Blu-ray be at Blu-ray picture quality, and added a couple new bonus features, including a video interview with Kasuhiro Otomo, which was it's definitely worth watching. As far as the manga itself, the film is kind of responsible for the manga making it out in the United States. Marvel Comics licensed the manga for release in the United States in 1988, the year the film came out. So it was actually making it out in the U.S. a little before the film hits theaters in the United States. And as was common with manga of the time, it was released in a comic book format one chapter per issue, with the manga itself being colorized, because that's kind of expected for comics in the United States, with Steve Olaf being chosen as the colorist by Katsuhiro Otomo himself. Olaf also used computer coloring, which would later be used by other Marvel books. Now, this release was done not by Marvel, publication was not done as Marvel directly itself, as a Marvel book, but as part of Marvel's Epic Comics line. Dark Horse Comics, in my home state of Oregon, later would release the more widely accessible um, and available trade paperback editions, a uh, six-volume set, along with the accompanying sort of appendix volume, Akira Club. And after that left print, Kodansha USA, when they started, uh, when Kodansha started their own branch in the United States, and to publish manga, basically just reprinted the uh, Dark Horse versions with some minor adjustments just uh, to the general trade dress. The Dark Horse and Kodansha releases are uncolorized, which makes sense. That's how the work would have been published originally. If you are buying the manga in French or Spanish in Europe, they also have the six trade paperback release version. However, that those releases are colorized. I don't know if they have a different colorist for the overseas release. I'm willing to assume... Well, I probably would not be surprised if they used the American colorization palette, since the colorist and the colorization decisions were approved by Otomo. So I can see Kazuhiro Otomo basically going, if you're going to color it, do it this way. This is how it's been done in the past. So, as far as the impact and success of the film itself, the film had a budget of approximately, this is doing a rough estimate, 9 million U.S. dollars. 
Again, this is a rough estimate because it is difficult to find conversion hit to find a calculator that'll do historical conversion rates for yen to dollars. And the film had a estimated budget of about one billion one hundred thousand dollars, or one billion one hundred thousand yen. Now, the shorthand that we use for whether a film was successful that Blaine uses is: Did it make three times its budget back? In the sense that, is the film's domestic box office, or in the case of Akira, its Japanese box office, equal to three times or more the budget of the film? So, the film's Japanese gross runs in at about six billion three hundred forty-six million yen. That is five times the film's domestic budget. Now, due to how film production is done in Japan, where usually a film is a product of a production committee, particularly for anime films, that is split into more ways. But if we're using the the sort of rule of three, it is profitable in Japan alone. Now, it's made some additional money in the United States. Its current total U.S. box office budget, not including revival screenings after the 2001 re-release for the new master, is $553,000. Not much. Practically a rounding error. But it made its money really well back in Japan. And so it certainly opened the door for more works by Otomo. We have, and indeed, we have gotten a few more Otomo films in the past. Probably some of the more notable ones being the film Steam Boy. Additionally, Otomo has made a few um, anthology films as part of his career. In fact, probably I think the reason that he's able to do as many anthology films as he's done in Hub is a hell of as many anthology films as he's done, such as the. Memories collection of shorts and involvements for spearheading the short piece collection of shorts and that sort of thing. The reason he's able to do that is because he has enough money, because he's just have a proven track record where he can take a lot of risks. The, uh, on other films, he has, however, I'll say that of the anime directors who we've discussed thus far, his filmography is probably the smallest. I mean, he's done other movies. Um, he's actually dabbled more than a few times in the live action. He did a live action film adaptation of the manga Mushishi, in addition to, again, directing the anime films, uh, Steam Boy, uh, contributing to lots of screenplay work. Uh, he did work on the screenplay for the anime film Osama Tezuka's Metropolis, which we'll be discussing about later. It also appeared in the tournament, and that's from 2001. But those are things for a time. The last issue we need to discuss is how did Akira fare in the tournament? Akira is one of the few anime films that successfully placed in the tournament. And it was eliminated in the first round by The Fifth Element. Which I find somewhat amusingly apropos in a weird way. Because The Fifth Element, in terms of the level of detail and intricacy of its world, borrows a lot from the works of Jean Giraud, who inspired Kazuhiro Otomo in terms of his world design and the little detail he brought to his animation and his manga. However, also to a certain degree, it took some cues from the level of detail that Otomo put in his Neo Tokyo as well. So I do find this somewhat amusing. So we will have another episode of the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament podcast next month in December. And also that month, rather than doing two episodes, we'll just have the one. And the other episode you'll hear me on will be the next installment of the Silver Screen Superheroes podcast, in which I will be discussing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. All right, I will see you then.